0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Win-Win Podcast. I'd like to start off on a personal note, because when this podcast launches on Monday, October 24th, I will be live podcasting at Money 2020, the largest global fintech innovation event in the world. When I started in the industry three years ago and made my big pivot from luxury fashion and strategy to technology and fintech specifically, I could not have imagined how quickly I'd get to have my own voice in the space and the opportunities I would have to amplify other women through my work with Women in Innovation. It is incredibly exciting to see it all come together, and I am super grateful to have you all tune in and be a part of this adventure with me. My guest at Money 2020 is May Zabane, who is the head of product for blockchain, crypto, and digital currencies at PayPal. As I mentioned, I will be live podcasting the conversation in front of an audience, but it will also be taped, so I will post it in about two weeks from now, so hopefully you all tune in and get to hear it too. For today's conversation, I am chatting with one of my dream guests, April Koh. April is co-founder and CEO at Spring Health, a precision mental health care tech company. Spring Health helps patients find the right solution for their mental health with as little trial and error as possible. Once the right solution is identified, Spring then helps customers get access to the right care quickly and efficiently. I mentioned that April is one of my dream guests, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about why I feel this way. To me, April is the quintessential woman in innovation. Her company and product innovation has gained tremendous commercial traction and is currently valued at $2 billion. She's also someone who is so open and transparent about her personal and professional journey, which is really aligned with my personal mission and a big reason why I started this podcast because I believe that without sharing knowledge, we are not really creating impact. Finally, I admire April's resilience. She has seen so many ups and downs with her business and her own rise, and you can tell that she's overcome a lot to focus on what's important, which is helping people with their mental health. I hope you enjoy the conversation with April. She's incredibly witty, honest, and of course, a tremendous person and leader. If you love this episode, please share it with your friends and subscribe review to make sure that we continue to amplify and reach as many phenomenal women and men as possible. Hi, April. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Thanks so much
1: for having me.
0: I'm so thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to meet and talk all about innovation and leadership with me. You have broken so many ceilings and continue to redefine use cases for machine learning, for healthcare, mental health, entrepreneurship. I mean, really, I could go on and on. At 24 years old, you started with an idea that was pretty straightforward. Mental health shouldn't be so hopeless and balked down with trial and error. Great. I love to see it. So, where do you begin?
1: Yeah, I'm super happy to share. So, I started Spring Health at Yale. I had dropped out for a few years to start another company. It was in e commerce and it had nothing to do with healthcare or mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a, a great, fun time building that company with some classmates. I was in LA for a few years working on that. It didn't work out, uh, and so I had one year left of school. Decided to make my parents happy and go back to school and finish <laughs> up. But when I went back to school, I knew I, I knew that the only thing that I, I I could do was build companies. I you know I had uh, fallen in love with building you know a startup with my first, and so I knew I wanted to do something again, and I knew this time around I wanted to work on something that would this sounds cheesy, but I wanted to change the world. Um, I was helping people buy clothes with my first startup. Mm -hmm. And I knew that no matter what I worked on, I would work, I would give it my heart and soul. And I wanted to work on something this time around, where me giving my heart and soul to um, the mission would have a huge impact uh, on the world and on people's lives. And the only thing that I thought uh, measured up to that and was worthwhile pursuing was um, fixing mental health care because I struggled with my mental health for a very long time. So I struggled uh, for over 10 years uh, with my mental health through high school and college. And um, I I struggled actually very severely. And I had many moments um, over those 10 years where I just felt like I would never find something that would, would actually work for me. And then also, it just felt like mental health issues were everywhere around me. So, my roommate really struggled severely and had to leave school for, for her issues. And, you know, 50% of Yaleys were going at Yale Mental Health. And so, uh, it just felt like a pervasive crisis. And I didn't see any solutions that were, were solving the, the, the major problems that I saw in the space. More particularly, I, I did notice that there were some digital mental health companies emerging. But they were all focused on making access to care faster. But you know, access for me wasn't the issue that I came across in my own journey. Um, I had fairly good access to, to high-quality care, actually. The thing that made my journey a nightmare and so painful was that I had access to all the wrong things. Right, So I would try a bunch of different things, a bunch of different programs, providers, treatments, and just couldn't find something for a very long time that would work for me. I wanted to fix that problem. I wanted to eliminate the guessing game in mental health care. And, you know, that was around the time when everything like Instagram and Facebook and Google, like everything around us was starting to get super data-driven and personalized. And I didn't see mm-hmm. any of that innovation happening in mental health care. So I um, decided to, to tackle that problem. And I came across... Uh, my, my co-founder's paper, which he published in The Lancet, which is one of the world's top medical journals, I I, I had a habit of reading through papers that came out of Yale Psychiatry, and, um, and I came across this paper, and it was describing the first ever machine learning model proven to outperform the average provider in matching someone to the right treatment for them. And, uh, I remember reading the paper and just feeling like, wow, this is the future of mental health care. Like everything that I had experienced with mental health care, um, with it being so, such a black box, you know, so much guessing, so much trial and error. This could be solved if we made mental health care fundamentally more data driven. And so I reached out to him cold. Um, I sent him a cold email that we laugh about to this day. And, you know, I said, I read your paper loved it. I think it's future of mental health care. Can you meet with me for coffee? And he responded very promptly asking me why I wanted to meet him for coffee and, um, you know, somehow convinced him to go on a walk. And we talked all about his research and, you know, and one thing led to another and we, um, we started Spring Health. And there's so much more to that story that, and I can go on for and sure. on, but uh, that's how <laughs> we got started.
0: No, first of all, go Adam. Great paper. Um, uh, No, I think it's also really important to call out, you know, this partnership that that the two of you have had. It's really, really exciting. I I stalk the both of you, and I think it's just for my online stalking sounds like a really great fit. I worked in luxury companies um, and some e-commerce companies, too, and I remember just one semester after being offered a, a real job from one of those companies, literally pretty much like dropping out of everything, studying for the LSATs, interning at the district attorney's office here in New York, literally going to prison every day. And everybody was like, are you having a breakdown? Like what's (laughs) happening? And I think for me, it was like, you know, I'm passionate about literally everything I do. Some would argue a little too passionate, but it's about like, where are you investing your mental health, your physical health, like what problems are you looking to solve? So I think the fact that you're solving this one is a a really great use of your time. And it's really exciting to have you at the helm of this conversation. But something that was really interesting to me was not only did you already have a startup before um, Spring Health, but you also dropped out to pursue it. You mentioned it. So, you know, I've watched you speak in several capacities. And at the most, you know, recent Forbes 30 Under 30 conference, you talked about the self-imposed risk averseness that women often have or society imposes on them where they qualify all the things that they have to do before they start a company. So not only did you not do that, you didn't do that twice, and once was after you already failed. So, like, it's not imposter syndrome. You really did fail, no offense. <laughs> um, so what do you attribute the fact that you didn't self-impose this risk averseness on yourself? Like, how are you able to not only start this company once and then start another one after you failed?
1: Yeah, So I think part of it is frankly genetic um, or maybe, I I don't know, maybe it's, it's socialized, but my dad is an entrepreneur and Mm. he, he raised me to believe I could do anything I wanted. And he would at the dinner table always have these, you know, new ideas that he would, um, you know, come up with and, and ask us whether we thought they were good ideas. He was very creative (laughs) and very entrepreneurial. And I think that I learned some of that from him and I, I believed him when he said that I could do whatever I wanted, and he's a successful entrepreneur in his own right. And um, I, I, I always saw that as a, as a, as a path that was open to me. Sure. I think also like there are some people who are just they they're meant to run their own thing you know and and Mm -hmm. um and they thrive in like the ownership and the the full accountability and there are there are the opposites of those people too right like some of my friends like they get major anxiety just thinking about um like having full accountability over a business Mm -hmm. like like spring Mm -hmm. health (laughs) um so i think you know to some degree, you're, you're built for it. And I think I get a lot of adrenaline and a lot of energy from being in control of my own destiny and, um, you know, run, running my own thing.
0: So that makes sense. But then I guess I, I was thinking that, you know, once you had already failed, was there a part of you that was like, uh oh, I was wrong about myself? Or did you just see it as another stepping stone in, in starting the next company? Like you have more things to learn from.
1: I think it was more the the latter. Like I, just, I think that if you go back and look at a lot of entrepreneurs um, who are you know successful, and um, I think that they have a number of failed ideas and startups totally. under their belt. And I think um, for a lot of founders or serial founders, I think it's just about like it's less about. Uh, the idea and more about, like, wanting to build something of consequence, right? Um, and so I think I just went through my journey of, like, you know, trying some, some idea out and then, you know, ending up with the idea that really clicked and, and really um, absorbed my full energy. For me, you know, since I, I own and lead a mental health company, I think a lot about my mental health and, and my relationship and, and my mental health relationship with my company, and I think for me, one of the the unique realizations that I've I've had over the years is that my mental health thrives when I when I work really really hard towards a very clear singular audacious goal. Like that is where my soul sings and thrives. And I, I mentioned I, I struggled with my mental health for a long time. I, I realize now like I, I can pinpoint when I, I suffered the most, and it was when mm-hmm. I lacked that direction and vision in my life. And now there's so much vision and direction in my life. And I know exactly kind of where I, I want to grow, where I want to take spring health. And that that fuels me and that gives me so much energy and, and that, that allows my mental health to, to really thrive.
0: I love that. And I think it takes a lot to even be able to articulate clearly, you've been on your own mental health journey, and you've been on such a huge journey with this company. And I think one of the other things that I wanted to call out is, you know, I I didn't ask the question around your first startup to call out the fact that you quote unquote failed, because clearly you haven't, this is success, or at least how I see success. But I think it's so important to not just even minimize or oversimplify how much work has gone into into your story. I mean, you know, we'll talk about it. But you know the youngest female unicorn founder all these things people see that but I think a lot of the times the journey and the the steps that you took to get there aren't as discussed so I really appreciate you calling that out and sharing that you called out that when you were struggling with your own mental health um, there were plenty of solutions and you mentioned you were lucky enough to have access so I know that you know with mental health it's not as quote unquote, easily is diagnosed. Um, It's not like go do this, and then you'll be okay. There's typically a a variety of solutions. And sometimes like you mentioned that trial and error. So what what is the starting point, at least on the consumer side? You know, what information do you get from them? And how do they really interface with this product?
1: The big innovation that Adam was able to prove was that you can ask questions via a digital questionnaire, collect largely behavioral self-report variables from a person, and then be able to predict what treatment would actually work for them. So that was a big mm-hmm. aha. That was a big innovation. Huge. Yeah. And he was able to prove that out across you know a few conditions with a few uh, therapeutics and a few treatments. And so the idea Mm -hmm. behind Spring was how do we blow that up and how do we make that so comprehensive and how do we account for all the treatments under the sun so that we can take anyone, no matter who they are and where they are in their mental health journey, no matter what they're struggling with, can come in and we can do an assessment and then point them on the right path and then ideally deliver the the thing that we we recommend for them. That was the big vision. And so we, we, we very quickly realized that in order to... Realize this vision, we needed to have access to a lot of patient and provider data. And so the whole initiative around going to market and finding a really viable commercial business model was all in service of this big technological vision that we had. Sure. Um, it wasn't, you know, neither of us are really driven by making a lot of money or, you know, getting rich or anything like that. Like for us, it's, it was like, how do we build new medicine fundamentally, revolutionary for mental health care. How do we make mental health care so precise and so personalized to each person? And how do we do that through data? And so we went out, tried to look for a commercial go-to-market that that made sense, found the employer um, Mm go-to-market and started to build a full stack mental health care solution for employees and their family members that would essentially onboard them. They would take a quick questionnaire. They would get a personalized care plan. Depending on their answers, we would match them with coaching or therapy or uh, maybe a medication with a psychiatrist or maybe just a mindfulness and meditation exercise. It really would depend Mm -hmm. on who they were and where, where they were in their journey. And then we would deliver access to whatever we recommended as seamlessly as possible. So with therapy and coaching appointments, this next day appointments that are always available. And then we kind of wrapped around this entire service, a care navigation service where, you know, we would pair each person with one care navigator, a compassionate human licensed clinician who who was fully equipped to um, answer any question that the person might have. And the care navigator was ultimately responsible or is, is ultimately responsible for making sure each person gets the resources that they need. So um, that that is how the member experience works. And that's mm-hmm. ultimately what we, we started selling to employers. And we just took off like very, very quickly once we entered the employer market.
0: Yeah, no, It's it's been really incredible to see these really huge companies, um, General Mills and Guardian, these are really traditional corporations, and to see them not only be a part of the mental health conversation, but actually put their money where their mouth is, is just super exciting. But to go back to, you know, that that first year or two before you had all of this momentum, I imagine that with such, you know, such a strong academic effort, but such a huge problem to solve, you may have a target vision in mind. But, you know, getting there can be really hard. And even beyond that, Deciding on what the right MVP in order to get there, I believe, must have been such a challenge. So, take me through the process, and and what are kind of some learnings that you've taken now that you try out new things and consider your MVPs? Like, what are some of those MVP determinator best practices you've learned along the way?
1: Ooh, well, first off, I think a, a big a big part of getting to an MVP qu- as quickly as possible. Is is by being as self-sufficient as possible in, in building product. So mm-hmm. um, there were three initial co-founders, um, me, Adam, and Avi, and we were all technical. So we all contributed wow. to the product in the early days. And you know, I mostly did front end, my co-founder did back end, Adam did the science and the machine learning, and it was just it kind of we were very self-sufficient. And so because we were self-sufficient, we would uh, do a pitch you know listen to the listen to how people reacted and then very quickly you know iterate on the product and this mm. and the sales pitch based on that pitch and that iterative process is the secret to getting to MV, uh, an mvp very quickly and i don't think a lot of people know that and a lot of people are very inclined to build products like very People call it waterfall, right? Like waterfall versus agile. And I know that agile sure, is kind sure. of like out of vogue now, but I think <laughs> being agile in the early days of creating an MVP is imperative. Like a lot of people think, okay, I have this vision, I'm going to create this amazing product, it has to be fully functional, and I'm going to unveil it to everyone. And that's just like the wrongest way to go about MVP. Mm-hmm. Like the best way, and even the formula that we follow today at Spring Health when we're launching new products is to create like the smallest kernel of the most valuable piece of what you're trying to create, really nail down the value prop, really, really succinctly be able to clearly state why it's important, to start selling it. And then, you know, based on people's reactions, iterate.
0: And I know this is kind of a generic question, but when people even say unique value prop, my question is how much value is enough, but not too much where it's like waterfall.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. That's a great question. I, I think that another big formula to MVP um, related to what you're you're asking is instinct and intuition, and like a lot of decisions are made on gut. and And the reason why I say that is, you know, when you are delivering enough value or when you are uh, when you have something that is of value, when uh, or by the person that you're selling to's reaction. So say that you're selling, mm-hmm. and then you like are explaining your value proposition and the product. If the person fundamentally does not have a strong reaction to what you are saying,
0: not enough. Value. Yeah, it's just not enough value. <laughs> and like,
1: you, it's like a very not concrete way to answer your question. But it's like you know when you see it, just like product market fit. You like, you you know when you have it. It's it's very. It's just like a feeling. Like it's like, and a more quantifiable way to to put it is like when the demand outpaces the supply. You you know that you're mm-hmm. onto something.
0: No, I actually think that's a great, great way to put it because it is really easy to get bogged down in the analysis paralysis. Like, I mean, I'm talking to a person whose co-founder has a white paper. The <laughs> fact that you, you guys even spent the time like going through the details and mulling into the white paper, some, you know, I, I imagine that there it's really easy to keep going down the path of research, which yeah. I know you have a ton of and did do, but you were able to go to market very, very quickly, which which is, is really uh, exciting. So, you know, the conversation about mental health goes far and wide and you yourself have said that there are countless solutions and programs that claim to solve people's mental health. And so, you know, we talked about the approach that you've taken that's going through the employee pathway and integrating into employee benefits. Once employees actually interface with Spring Health, they can also be seen by a physician within two days. But the entryway there is still through your employer. And so you kind of have to have trust in your employer to, to go through them to talk about your mental health. And I'm wondering, how much do you think of the problem or the innovation that you're solving is not only the, the incredible technology that you have to offer, but also changing the conversation around mental health in the framework of a company or your employer's role in participating in it?
1: Ooh, such a great, great question. I, I can address it in so many different ways. But the first thing that I'll say is that 80% of burnout and stress is because of the workplace. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, people spend a lot of their time. Um, in the workplace and at work, and um, and so I think it makes total sense that employers would be held accountable to the mental health of their employees, and you know take action and invest against better supporting their their employees' mental health. So I think from like an ethical and moral perspective, it just makes a lot of sense to me. Financially, it makes a lot of sense as well. Um, I don't think consumers should have to pay for their, their, their health care um, fundamentally. And in the U.S., um, you know, regardless of whether you, you agree with this or not, employers pay for a lot of health care. And so it makes sense that, you know, the, the cost of therapy would be fully subsidized by an employer um, or at the very least your health plan. And the way that we've gone to market enables this. Um, and it allows consumers to consume really, really high quality, you know, precise mental health care for them and not have to pay for it. So, it, 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 like everything's aligned in so many ways. Like, and I think I, I'm so in love with our go-to-market because it it eliminates the financial barriers to care. It eliminates the access barriers to care. It, eliminate, it eliminates the barriers around you know guessing and confusion around care. And so, you know, our mission statement as a company is to eliminate every barrier to mental health care, and we deliver on that through this through this go-to-market. I imagine it's a big part of
0: your success is that your solution is so multifaceted and solves so many, kills so many birds with one stone, which is really exciting. Knowing that something like healthcare or mental health is like so highly regulated, I, I work at a big bank, so I think about regulation more than I'd like to admit. But I imagine that, you know, you have these values of your companies that are about moving fast. You're clearly yourself a, a quick mover. So how do you balance moving quickly and regulation? And do you ultimately see yourself as the company scales, like having a hand in policy making and really those considerations?
1: Absolutely. I mean, we're already having those conversations at Spring Health. There are structural um, changes that that need to to be made uh, at the highest levels uh, of government um, for true equity to... Exist um, within healthcare, and so we're absolutely contributing to those conversations. From a regulatory perspective, look, we do not cut corners, and the reality is, our our, uh, we have many values, including move fast to change lives. Uh, We we very uh, intentionally put to change lives after move fast because we Mm want to align the speed, not to you know growth at all costs, but really to the member uh, and to changing. Um, the person's life. But, you know, even above that value, we have a value called members come first. And and so the member comes first. And like, if we have to, if we have to slow down our our revenue growth or our top line growth, because we want to take the safe route for the member and the ethical route, like we will absolutely do that. Different companies have different postures towards this, frankly. I think it's so symbolic and it's so it's so, it's so meaningful to us that we, we started the company off of a paper, off of a Lancet paper and, and no less, right? Lancet is one of the top medical journals in the world. The level of validation that our technology had from the get-go was very, very high. And so that focus on evidence, that focus on validation and science has, has been there at Spring Health from, from the, the first day. And we continue to care very much about evidence and, and validation. And we do not introduce anything in our product that isn't fundamentally, at least, evidence based.
0: That makes so much sense. And it's just fundamentally right yet you're right we've seen so many companies not take this route and we've seen fraud in this space as a result too so it's really really important that you have that in your DNA and also within your foundations but you know talking about this space of balancing you know business needs as well as you know your actual product and your solution you most recently closed 190 million series C which brought you to a two billion dollar evaluation which is so exciting and so incredible but I also also imagine that it does change the measures of success that you abide by for yourself in the very least, maybe, or also for your company, right? You have certain expectations that the money that is raised is going to have a payoff for somebody, right? So what has changed about your leadership and how you think about innovation and
1: KPIs
0: during the last five years or even with this raise?
1: I could see how people might think that. Um, for me, it, it's fundamentally changed nothing, and and here's why. So we, at every juncture, whenever we fundraised, we looked for because we had our we had optionality because we were you know we've always grown very very well uh, because we've always had optionality and we very intentionally chose investors who are aligned with us on the long-term vision. Mm -hmm. And our vision has really not changed from day one, which is raise the bar in mental health care, revolutionize mental health care so that it is more data-driven and personalized. The world is rapidly changing. Things like Mm -hmm. Instagram and Netflix and Amazon, all these things exist. They're very data-driven, and they're kind of, in, in terms of innovation, they're outpacing you know, some of the things that are protecting our mental health, like mental health care. And that vision, right, of, of, you know, catching up, making our health care and mental health care fundamentally just as, if not more data-driven than everything else in our lives, that has never wavered. And that requires a certain level of scale and longevity as a company. And totally. so, you know, I, I told the team, like, we're building a company that will be around in 100 years, and mm-hmm. we are building a business that will be sustainable and beneficial, and will serve our members for years and years to come. That has never changed, and so I could see why someone would say, you know, oh, you've raised all this money. Where we're at, it's it's like we've we chose investors that were aligned with our long term sure. vision, who are impact driven, and who are you know, socially minded and and, um, consider themselves to be good citizens of the world. Um, Mm -hmm. And we've chosen those investors uh, very intentionally at every single fundraise.
0: Yeah, and, and I can back that in, in the conversation on Guardian, uh, Guardian as a, you know, a part of your fundraise, as well as now a partner, right? And with, they have so many employees, and they're granting so much access, and they're both a part of your fundraise, as well as a part of the way that you're actually um, solving this problem. So yeah.
1: I can definitely
0: agree with that. <laughs> yeah,
1: also, absolutely. And then, you know, Shinovic, who led our last round, they're very socially minded, they hold their portfolio companies accountable to diversity and impact metrics in a very quantified way and so they they actually have a policy where they won't follow on in investments in any portfolio company that hasn't made meaningful progress in uh, the diversity of their team and their board and when i read that i was i was blown away and i was like this yeah. here's an investment team that is just fundamentally aligned with you know my values and, and the company's values
0: For sure. And I think the conversation about impact investing is just maturing in a way that's so exciting, that's less like quota driven, but it's really like alignment across the business model around the team. And I think that's really, really fun and exciting to see. You know, you do so many of these interviews around being a leader, about being a founder, being a woman, a woman of color, and all these different dimensions around diversity, which obviously I'm very thrilled about. But I wonder, you know, when you think about Your conversation around whether it's your gender or where you're from or how old you are, you know, how important is it for you to be a leading voice in that conversation? Do you ever have days where you're just like, I'm a successful founder, I'm not a successful 29 year old founder, a woman (laughs) founder, a woman of color founder, like, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with it um, because, uh, you know, on the one hand, I I want people to understand that Spring Health is an amazing company, period. Um, that it is not a company that's great for a female founder or female CEO, or you know, great for a CEO who's thirty years old. Like, it is a great company, period. I, I just want the company to be recognized for that. In that way, I'm not in love with with the labels. Um, but look, I remember six years ago when I started the company just like looking for people who look like me in, in this role, right, as as a founder CEO. Um, and there were there were so there were only a handful, right? Um there's still, by the way, are are only a handful of, of female CEOs, founders who are, you know, running their businesses at this scale, unfortunately. And so I think back to six years ago and I, and I remember just wanting and being so hungry for mentors, for, for people to look up to, for, for role models and just like not really having that. Um, and like really clinging on to the few people who, who, you know, look like me. And so if I can serve in that way of, of being an inspiration and, um, confirmation for, for people who look like me that they can do what I, I am doing and, I think that's amazing and like yeah. that's an honor right uh that's such a privilege and um in that way you know i, I think it's it's fine that i'm you know labeled young and and, and female and a person of color
0: <laughs> <laughs> no I, I get it i get it I, I have this consideration all the time right you don't want to be like the gender person or the this person or the age person but i also think that you know i I asked you earlier about the fact that you didn't have this self-imposed limit or barrier. You just went for starting a company and then starting another one. And, you know, when I think about what are ways that other people can do that, I think one very real one is just Not to plug my own podcast, but it's just to like listen to you and see you do it and and see a little bit of themselves in you and your story, besides just having like a very good objective reasons as to why they shouldn't hold themselves back.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Like, I I have this theory that there aren't enough female founders because they don't see people who look like them in these Mm -hmm. positions. And so they don't even see it as a viable career path for themselves. And so the more people, are out there that look like, look just like us and are you know killing it and succeeding. I think the better, and will inspire the next generation.
0: Completely. Because when you think about what is the face of healthcare, you're probably not seeing April Co. sitting there. I mean, maybe now you are. But before you, you thought about maybe a bunch of white men in like lab coats or whatever it may be. And I think it's the same thing. I, I know I experienced it with financial services. I never in my life would have I told you I would have ended up in the space that I did because I thought it was boring and lame. And, you know, what does money have to do with anything? And now I'm like, money is weaved into everything. We should be investing. We Should be this, that, you know? And so it's like it completely changed for me because I saw another woman, shout out to Maria, for actually paving that way for me. And then she said, Well, why wouldn't you do it? And that's when I realized I was my own biggest, you know, self imposed limitation. That's so cool. So with that, you know, considering the conversation about women founders and women, even when women get to that place of success, a lot of the times they're initially praised and applauded, but then they can be criticized too. And I think it's really challenging to both be focusing on success and, you know, solving problems, but also be thinking about the narrative that women are unfairly held to and the double standards that they experience. How do you think about that? And and what can women really learn about the way that you're thinking about it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to think about the facts. Um, there are so many studies um, that have been done around the bias against powerful women. And it is just a reality. And I think, you know, some people think that feminism is done and did. And like they think that, you know, <laughs> we've achieved equality and we should all move on. And it's just not true, right? Like the these biases are deeply, deeply entrenched in society and in individuals, even in women, definitely in, uh, including women. And so, there's a lot of research to show that you know powerful women are more disliked than powerful men. Right. <laughs> And um, people will respond much more negatively from negative criti- criticism and feedback coming from a woman than they will a man. This has been proven. There's been, you know, a study that that kind of took the same resume, um, that the name was blotted out and you know, replaced with Heidi and Harold, and people were uh, asked to give reactions to um, the resumes, and the, uh, you know, everyone thought that Heidi was very unlikable and you know, too ambitious, whereas Harold was a go-getter and, you know, charismatic. And, you know, that's that's the gender bias that still exists in, in, in society today. And I think we should just be cognizant of it. The more that we're cognizant mm-hmm. of it, I think that we can overcome these biases and work towards a more equitable world. But I think as long as people turn a, turn a blind eye or just deny that feminism is—or sorry, sexism is still well uh, and, and alive, I think— that is what holds us back. I think people need to continue to talk about it. It's, it's, it. I think people talk about sexism much less now for some reason, I think there was like, there was a peak with Me Too and, and now I don't, I don't think people talk about it as much anymore. Um, and if people don't talk about it, I think they'll forget it. Um, we, we need to uh, help people realize that these things are alive and well and um, they're holding many, many women back from becoming you know, powerful leaders.
0: I could not agree more. And I, to the point about the conversation about sexism, you're right. Maybe we don't need to have the conversation of should women be able to vote? Like, I think that one's maybe all good, but I I think that the nuanced conversation is the one that needs to take place. And so with that, I'd love to ask you to look into a crystal ball, both in terms of yourself and your industry, and tell us where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now?
1: Oh, wow. This is such a great question. Um, I would say personally in one month, I will still be hard at work, building spring health, um, leading the company thriving because I'm having so much fun and it is so hard, but it is so challenging (laughs) and I love it. Um, and I'm surrounded by the most talented and incredible people, um, truly. And so it's, it's really invigorating Um, One year from now, we will be at a much bigger scale. We will have um, launched uh, a really exciting new product that I am excited to announce very soon, uh, which will allow us to deepen our impact across many, many more lives. So very excited about that. And then in 10 years, uh, Spring Health will be the leading behavioral healthcare company in the world. We will be the largest behavioral health company that has the biggest impact on people's lives. And we will have fundamentally revolutionized and changed the face of mental health care so that it is much less of a guessing game and much more of a data-driven science, which will allow people to get better as quickly as possible by matching each person to the right care for them from the start. Mental health care will just look very, very different and will be a lot more precise and personalized. And we will have eliminated so much suffering and so much pain by getting it right from the start. So that's in 10 years uh, where Spring Health will be. And uh, I have no ego uh, in being the CEO of Spring Health. And I hire myself into the role every year. And if I am (laughs) the right CEO in 10 years, then so be it. And I will be so excited and energized to keep working really hard uh, towards this vision. Uh, And if, if I'm not, I... I, for me, it's it's much less important to be CEO and much more important to, to change the world and have as much impact as possible.
0: I love that. Thank you so much for an amazing conversation, April. Seriously, just keep doing what you're doing. We're all cheering you on and applauding you. And it's been great chatting with you. It's
1: been so fun. Thanks so much, Zoya.
0: Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by WIN, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakal. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit WomenInInnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.